a um, joy to be sharing with you from the Lord's Word tonight. Uh, this is my second time preaching the sermon, and the first time when I was preparing it, I happened to be getting my blood drawn, and I was talking to the nurse, just a little bit of chit-chat, small talk. It's not like you're having an important conversation while they're focusing on taking your blood out. And she just uh, casually mentioned, what are you doing this weekend? And it's pretty easy to uh, mention the gospel when you're preaching, so I <laughs> took the opportunity and said, oh, I'm preaching this Sunday. And what she said surprised me, and maybe shouldn't. Without missing a beat, she said, what an honour. And I had to take a moment and pause, and rightly humbled by this nurse, I was drawn to pray and dwell upon the nature of preaching. So uh, please join me in prayer just before we move into talking about First Peter. Lord, we are the potter's clay, created things. Yet, you have created us for relationships, and you have invited us to relationship with you. Thank you. Please guide our heads, hearts, and hands as we look at your word. Lord, please use the words I speak to bring you glory and bring us all to a deeper understanding of you. Amen. I um, should flag something right up the front here. The passage tonight includes a verse that has been used to justify some abhorrent and sinful behaviour. Husbands uh, sinning and defending themselves, twisting scripture to mean something that it does not. I won't be spending heaps of time unpacking the specific ways that it has been used wrongly, but I want to be clear. God does not command wives to endorse sin, nor to quietly ignore it. What do you do to avoid suffering? What have you done to avoid suffering? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever avoided putting yourself out there? Ever been selfish? Those uh, three specific options are ones that I have done again and again to avoid all kinds of suffering. You may have caught glimpses in this passage, but the Christian life is not one free of suffering. Our example, our teacher and our saviour, Jesus Christ, suffered, suffered on a cross for us. I have been uh, slowly preaching through the, uh, this letter, this epistle, and uh, each time I've had an opportunity to preach, I've uh, moved a little bit further forward, sometimes whole chapters, sometimes just chunks. And that's great for me, because I can truly sink my teeth into a commentary and do a lot of the important background work and feel comfortable with the message that I'm preaching. It is less great for the various congregations that hear me sporadically here, there and everywhere. Uh, so I find it helpful to do a little who, what, where, when and why of what First Peter is and kind of where we're up to in First Peter. Peter, the apostle of ear-chopping, thrice-denying, forgiven fame, is writing to the hundreds and thousands of Christians uh, sprinkled through all Asia Minor. He's writing to mixed congregations of converted Jewish people and to former Gentiles. He's writing a letter, this particular letter, First Peter, to encourage them to cling to the good news, to let them know that any suffering here and now, any suffering, is worth it. 
they have an imperishable, unfading, unspoiled inheritance waiting for them, and it's worth it. The exact time frame of First Peter is a little bit debated, and as much fun as I might have talking to you about it after the sermon, the main point is uh, it's at least 60 years after Jesus' um, ministry, at least 30 years after Jesus' ministry, 60 years after he was born. Um, but before, almost certainly before, there was a wide-scale institutional persecution of Christians. It's pretty likely this was not written when the Roman Empire was told, get rid of all the Christians. The most likely kind of suffering that the Christians hearing this letter were facing is local, in the community. They could be losing their jobs, cast out from families, refused to be able to do business or buy from businesses, slandered as unlucky, uh, Christians who were unwilling to worship or sacrifice to the pagan gods were considered the reason that crops failed or boats sank or, or lots of things like this that definitely weren't their fault, but it uh, appeals to people to have a group of people to blame. And Christians at this time uh, could have been facing this. And it is in this light that Peter writes to Christians and says, this suffering, these things people say about you, this uh, being shunned from your family, this loss of business, this suffering is worth it. That's a tough sell. I uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about what it would have been like to hear that. I know when I first became a Christian, it was exciting. It was the first uh, big important thing I wanted to talk to people about. But after a little while, I uh, lost the naivety that said becoming a Christian would solve all my problems, and life went on and things were hard. And at times it made me angry with God. I trusted you. You said you would do all these things, you made grand promises, and here I am still suffering. I had a shallow understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. And Peter is writing to these Christians then, and God is using his words for us now, that our faith can go deeper, that the suffering can be worth it. All throughout this letter, Peter has been moving through wonderful gospel truth, things that you need to know about God and what it is to be a Christian, to instruction. And he ebbs and flows between these two things, uh, a little bit of back and forth, because tying how we behave and what we're told to do to what God has already done and who we are because of it is important. We aren't earning our salvation, we're responding to it. The passage we are looking at today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to chapter 3, verse 7, is mostly instruction. And uh, it starts with instructions that are applicable to everyone. It's a, a general, hey, guys hearing this, guys and girls, this is for you as Christians. And then it breaks down a little bit into the family unit, the kind of people that you'll find in a, a microcosm of community. Slaves, servants of the household, wives and husbands. I think it is important to look at what was instructed to all Christians first, 
And so uh, in verses 13 to 17, there's a brief outline of God's purposes for Christians and uh, human authority. Not necessarily Christians in authority, but uh, the role of authority. Why God allows and made humans to build into kind of hierarchical structures. Human institutions, emperors, governors, every kind of human authority, coaches, umpires. God wants these roles, whether they be filled by believers or unbelievers, to bring justice, to punish evil, and to reward good behaviour. And it would be great if that is what human institutional authorities did, if that is <laughs> all they did. But we know that they don't. <laughs> we have experienced uh, injustice. We've witnessed it, heard about it, maybe even done it ourselves. Even in the best, most stable uh, government, there will be corruption. They will enforce sinful laws. But overall, human institutions of authority do work as God intended. They can and do reward good. They can and do punish evil. They can and do make just laws. It's just tainted by human error. In uh, the first half of verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good. The instruction to Christian is about God's will. It acknowledges that we are under human authority that won't always get it right. And it is tied back to how we respond to God. It is God's will that by doing good. I want to make a special emphasis on this aspect of submitting and obedience. This part, these verses that are for all Christians, sets the tone for the various groups that are addressed by Peter later on. Keep in mind, for it is God's will that by doing good. Uh, it's pretty neatly broken into three categories, slaves or servants, depending on which translation of the Bible you have, wives and husbands. And uh, in each of these roles, it is by submitting to God and doing his will that we are ever asked to submit to any human. God never commands us to sin, never asks us to remain silent on behalf of the vulnerable, and to never silently allow evil governments to betray God's purposes. This is not a passage that says, roll over and let things be. There is more nuance than that. I'll start with the easiest example and the best example of submitting to God's will, but also uh, allowing human authorities to have a say in your life. Jesus was both a religious and politically radical man. The things he said and did angered the people in power at the time. He challenged the Jewish leaders, and he knew he was king over all. He challenged the Roman authorities both the religious leaders and the Roman government. They uh, made spurious accusations against him and they put him to death. Jesus uh, frequently and publicly and with great fervour 
preached about changing the status quo. The way things were wasn't reflecting God's will. He made it clear that Yahweh was a God that loved us deeply, knew our hearts and wanted our actions to reflect our innermost beliefs. God wanted us to know him, love him, and then act accordingly. The Pharisees said, it doesn't matter if God loves us. Here are the rules. This is the way to earn it. And we want to be the ones to tell you what the rules are. The Roman authorities didn't even acknowledge God, didn't acknowledge Yahweh. They said, we have the power. We have the swords. You will listen to us. And so the Jewish leaders needed to tell a lie about Jesus to get him arrested. And the Roman authorities needed to believe that lie to be willing to kill him. The Jewish leaders knew they were lying, and even Pontius Pilate knew him as blameless. Jesus acted in such a way, even his enemies, those who wanted to execute him, had to make things up, had to lie, had to say untruthful things because they couldn't condemn him with his actions. Uh, I don't always like to bring a human example after um, Jesus because, of course, it will pale in comparison. But I do want to bring attention to the nature of obedience in a sinful government. And so uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a theologian in Germany. Uh, he came into adulthood just before Hitler came into power. He was born into a very rich and very clever family. He had a lot of opportunities. And uh, when he expressed that he wanted to study theology, like his grandfather on his mum's side, a few of his siblings, and his dad in particular, were really disappointed that this is the way he was using his brains. And initially, to Bonhoeffer, it was a little bit of an intellectual challenge. It wasn't a heart matter that he wanted to study God, to learn more. It was something that he enjoyed doing, but was at an arm's distance, was very academic. But as at some point, while he was studying theology, it came home he understood that this was the living word of God and he let that shape the rest of his lives. Life. <laughs> he uh, was publicly and ready to decry Hitler before he even came into power, which meant he was restricted in being able to publish books, publish research, to uh, run the training, his kind of seminary college for young pastors. And then as those restrictions grew worse and the horrors against the Jews grew worse, uh, Bonhoeffer willingly joined the resistance and was part of uh, plans to assassinate Hitler. He knew that this government was in charge and he had wrestled with this verse in particular. He uh, wrote a letter to his best friend about how does he respond to First Peter and submitting to every earthly authority. And he says, uh, when you are commanded to sin, you must disobey. And when uh, the command is infiltrating and wounding the vulnerable, the people without power, Christians must act. He was comfortable with the choices he made. And uh, right through, even after being arrested, initially just for being part of the resistance. It wasn't known that he was part of the plan to kill Hitler, 
but while arrested, uh, that information was found out, and so he spent the last two and a half years of his life in prison. And uh, every prison he was at, the same story emerges. He kept reading his Bible daily, he kept praying, he kept singing psalms, and uh, a various uh, fellow prisoners, some of them ex-Nazi members who had been arrested because they'd had a falling out, not because they'd changed their beliefs, all said of Bonhoeffer that he would share his rations, share his cigarettes. He was kind to the end, unwavering in the suffering he faced. There are uh, lots of ways as Christians that we can submit to earthly authorities, but I want you to keep in mind it does not mean obeying blindly and following sin. We're called to act as well as submit. We mustn't just ignore sin. We must live as God wills, trusting him who judges justly willing to suffer both unjust personal slander and punishment for standing up for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Moving on uh, to verses 18 through to 25. When Peter is addressing the slaves, he isn't talking about the exact kind of slavery that we might picture, the transatlantic slave trade uh, that's depicted in a lot of movies and has uh, affected our understanding of what exactly a slave is. Slaves at the time that Peter were writing this letter could be managers, they could be artists, they could be skilled professionals. They were, of course, still vulnerable. They were still in the hands of someone with authority over them. They were mistreated frequently and considered lesser frequently. But it was slightly better, slightly better circumstances than the horrors of the 19th and 20th century slave trade. If uh, you've been around Christian communities for a little while, you may have heard uh, the way we might fit our ideas, how to think about application, about uh, slavehood now, as uh, similar to our jobs, similar to being someone in the workforce, because it's not easy to imagine what it was like to be a slave. And it is uh, an easy parallel. Slaves are asked to do something by someone that uh, is in control of them, and we probably have a boss who asks us to do something that we have to do. Uh, I'm not saying throw out this parallel, I just think it's important to note, it was different. The uh, consequences and the situation is much nicer now. I've worked some pretty awful jobs, uh, paid cash in hand, well below minimum wage, had a boss that reported my earnings and super incorrectly, meaning that Centrelink set the debt collectors for me. That was a shocking phone call. <laughs> and took a long time to untangle. All that, I've never had a boss that I thought was going to beat me. <laughs> never had a boss that was like, hey, Paul, you know you just spilled that plate of chips or uh, didn't get the right money from the um, customer? I'm going to whip you now. It's um, a bit different. As a child, I was a sensitive kid. Uh, not quiet and meek, but prone to taking criticism very personally. 
in grade six, so I was 12 or 13, uh, we'd all been encouraged to sit down and start the next element of our lesson. And I was under the table picking something up or maybe nicking a pencil from a mate. And I rightly got scolded. Minor scolding. Paul, listen, sit down. Along those lines. I very quickly found an excuse to leave the classroom because I could feel that hot sting of tears coming to my eyes. I don't like suffering even when I've done wrong. There have been a lot of years and a lot of life since grade six, and I certainly am much more able to hear and receive criticism, so let me know how the sermon goes at the end. <laughs> promise I won't cry. I might leave. <laughs> but that desire, that tendency to avoid getting in trouble, was much harder work. Controlling the tears was relatively easy. Wanting to avoid getting in trouble, harder. I um, used to work in the kitchen of a retirement home, a nursing home. And uh, my particular role often left me as the last person in the kitchen. I would do the sweeping, the mopping up, and set it up for the next shift the next day. And I had moved the blast freezer and swept and then mopped behind. And as I was turning back, I'd put my hand on the switch and turned it off. Uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars worth of food, gone. Uh, not just not frozen, <laughs> not just not ready, but unusable because it was in the danger zone. It could have given food poisoning to uh, some people who definitely couldn't handle it. Uh, I happened to be in the next day in the afternoon, and the two uh, staff, the people lower on the tier list who it could have been, were both there, myself and a colleague. And we were both asked, individually, privately, quite well, ultimately, by uh, our boss, do you know what happened to the blast freezer? Because I was uh, relatively new to the kitchen, and because uh, both of us uh, members who were asked were not very bold or confident for um, confrontation, neither of us said anything. The other girl, obviously because she didn't do it, and me, I lied because I was afraid to suffer for doing wrong. I was a Christian at the time, but I was still afraid. The more time I've spent with uh, God's Word and with God, the more understanding of being deeply loved and forgiven has grown. The more I realise how people react to me, how they think of me matters less. As my faith grows, it allows me to accept both just suffering and unjust suffering. I've been more able to say, yes, it was me who made the mistake, or keep my mouth quiet and not defend myself when I'm being accused of something that I didn't do. Often, uh, Preachers can find themselves wanting to force Christ into their sermons, find some way to talk about the grace that we have offered. And it's a good and right desire. It's uh, great news. It's a thing that we should want to talk about. In the Old Testament, it can be hard and clunky and uh, sometimes just wrong to bring Christ into it explicitly. In the New Testament, it happens less often, 
But today, I don't even have to fight the temptation. Uh, Peter has done the work for me, and it is explicit in verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Even when, even when we are in positions of submission, under authority, good or bad, we are reminded that God is the ultimate authority and can be wholly trusted. It's a bit easier to um, trust God when all you need to say is, yes, I turned off the blast freezer, <laughs> than yes, I will go to the cross. It's a pretty powerful uh, example. And Jesus didn't want to. In the garden at Gethsemane, he prayed, begged, please take this cup from me, but still went willingly. Uh, in the same way, <laughs> Jesus is that in the same way that wives are called to submit. That's scary. Makes me uncomfortable and I'm a husband. <laughs> At the time of Peter's letter, uh, Christianity was providing a revolutionary amount of freedom for women. It was practic practically unheard of that wives could be a different religion to their husbands that they could have thoughts outside of their husbands, have the option to believe or worship. But Christianity came for the weak, the humbled, the vulnerable. You need to be humbled to become a Christian. You need to say, I need help. I can't do this without you. Jesus need to die in your place. And so... The contrast between being a Christian, hearing this letter, and being a pagan and seeing the Christian women was stark. Here, uh, Peter says, they are co-heirs, equally made in God's image. There is a minor academic debate about whether Peter is writing to wives, expecting the majority of them to have non-believing husbands, or if they will be fellow Christians. I think it is helpful uh, to look at chapter 3, verse 1, if any of them do not believe. That seems to imply that that is the less frequent situation. Mostly, he's writing to the couples who are hearing this letter together. Two believing uh, adults, married. And it's in that situation that he calls them to obedience. Still making note that there will be unbelieving husbands. I um, have been part of various cricket clubs over my life. They are uh, not at all similar to church. <laughs> they speak more roughly. They talk about different things. They have vividly different priorities. And they are frequently hard places to be a faithful Christian. It is nicer to fit in to belong, to act and behave the way that you're expected to. And as I was thinking about Peter's instructions to wives, he was encouraging them to act in a way that was attractive, a way that uh, would draw them to know Christ, to draw them to church, to make them know God. 
I don't think that that is meekly submitting alone. I don't think that is uh, not challenging sin. I think that is building up your husband, supporting your husband in the ways that you can, allowing him to make bad decisions, allowing him to do dumb things, following where he leads, but not sinning. I don't know off the top of your head how much of the story of Abraham and Sarah you will remember, but uh, at one stage, Abraham is leading them through a series of countries that they need to get through. And again and again, Abraham says to his wife, hey, you pretend to be my sister, because that way they won't hurt me, because they'll want to steal you. Like, you're a great wife. You're hot. They're going to want you. I know that this is going to be a problem. And so, out of respect for me, if you're my sister, they won't do it. It does not work. He does it multiple times, and it is wrong every time. And yet, Sarah submits. She lets him make that mistake again and again. The story of Sarah is not one of perfect obedience. There are times where Sarah makes mistakes or doesn't believe the promises God makes to her and to Abraham. But uh, there is a model of willingly following your husband, being ready and able to submit to bad ideas. After this pattern of uh, addressing the more vulnerable parties, after not bothering to address the earthly authorities, after talking to servants, to slaves, after talking to wives, Peter does uh, make a change and address the one who has been given authority, the one who uh, he said is at the top at this particular group. He takes time out to address them. He says, um, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The word here in the NIV translation that is uh, considerate is actually uh, just the word knowledge. It's been uh, translated as considerate as that's the way the NIV translators thought you would be applying this knowledge. When you know your wife, you can know how to be considerate towards them. And that's good and right. And it's a great start. But there's good reason to think husbands are to use their knowledge for more than that. Their knowledge of their wife, their knowledge of God and of life to build up their wives to love their lives well. Again, another uh, NIV translation word that might be helpful to build further from is the word respect. It might not quite uh, convey the same meaning as it was meant to. We can think of respect as being cold and distanced. It doesn't always have to be uh, personal. It doesn't have to be meaningful. You can respect a prince a uh, governor, you can respect someone you've never met because they have a position that is worthy of respect. And again, a good and helpful start. Absolutely, respect your wives. But honour is another way you could translate this word. And I think uh, it is more helpful. 
honour your wives. It's not cold, not unfeeling. It's not uh, simply a respect that husbands are to show. Rather, women as the weaker or the vulnerable party, the willingly submissive member of the marriage, deserve honour. They are made in God's image, just as uh, you are. They are heirs to the gift of life that Jesus has provided, the one that we have here and now, and the one we will have. They are being asked to submit to you, husbands. Do not abuse this position. Don't stray from your authority for selfish or sinful reasons. It is um, hard to know exactly what kind of weakness Peter is talking about. Uh, the language studies uh, don't help me a lot in this case. It really is just weakness. <laughs> um, contextually, there are two things that I'm pretty confident in applying this weakness as. In the submissive role, they are uh, in a weaker position. Having to listen to instructions and follow instructions is harder than the uh, is a weaker, more vulnerable position to be in than to be the one making the decisions, the one telling someone what to do. And uh, in the general nature of the sexes, there are usually physical differences between the sexes. And again, that is not a weakness to be taken advantage of. I'm confident that these two kinds of weaknesses apply. I would caution uh, anyone who is thinking that they are spiritually weaker or lesser, that this doesn't uh, mesh well with being co-heirs and uh, bathed in God's image. But there is a, a power dynamic at play here, and Peter addresses it, says to husbands, don't abuse it. It's not often uh, that I will do this. It's not often that I preach. But even when I have preached, I don't like to quote uh, longer running sections of the commentary that I've used. But I think uh, this quote that I'm about to use from the, one of the commentaries I was reading sums it up really well. So um, from Grudham's commentary on First Peter, <laughs> no Christian husband should presume to think any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his life in an understanding way, bestowing honour on her. To take time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Peter. Thank you that he wrote to Christians at a time where it was tough to be a Christian. Thank you that he kept pointing them back to you, reminding them what you have saved up and waiting for them and what you have already done for them. Lord, please fill our hearts with this knowledge of you. Prepare us to obey even when it is hard. Give us the will and the understanding of you. Give us a way and a confidence to submit, knowing you are the Lord who judges justly. Amen.